Well, welcome to our worship gathering. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day morning. It's pretty beautiful outside, isn't it? I kind of wish we had the service outside. It's not really too cool, not too warm. It's beautiful out. Last Sunday, during our Job study called Sovereign Suffering, we studied part one of Job's response to his friend Zophar in Job chapter 12. We looked at Job's derision, his deconstruction. We looked at his demand and his demonstration for D's. We learned about God's incredible might, his power, and how he uses his awesome power to not only save people from sin, Satan, death, and hell, but to rescue them from bad theology and false, false religion. In chapter 13, Job continues his response to Zophar. This time he challenges Zophar to hear his defense, accusing him of, of using lies, and he expresses his desire to speak to God in order to prove his innocence. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 13. Job chapter 13. Give you a moment just to turn there. Once more, Job chapter 13. I have divided in typical fashion. I've divided into three sections. This morning, we're not looking at D's. We're looking at I's. We will look at Job's irritation. And boy, does he express his irritation in this section. We're going to look at Job's irritation. We're going to look at his indication. And we're going to look at his intercession, his prayer. But we need to pray before we actually get to work. Father, we yet again humble ourselves now, place ourselves under the authority of your word, under your authority, and we ask, Father, that through the Holy Spirit that you open our, our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts to the truth, that you give us now through your supernatural power a desire to not only hear and and, 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 and understand it, but to apply it and to live it out. And so we, we pray that you teach us from your powerful word this morning, that you take it and, and apply it in such a way to your people that it makes us more like Jesus, which is what you've predestined us to. That's the goal of our salvation, ultimately. It's not golden streets and mansions in heaven, which is wonderful. It is to be made like Jesus in this life so that we can reflect His glory and goodness to this lost and dying world. And so we pray that you sanctify your people this morning. And we pray that you call those who are not yet your people, we pray that you call them out of darkness and place them in the light, in the light, in your kingdom. And uh, we submit ourselves once more and we, we humbly say we love you and we adore you and we look forward to what you'll teach us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can pick up where we left off last Sunday, and we can begin with our first eye. This is, number one, Job's irritation. We see his irritation in verses 1 through 12, the whole beginning of this chapter. It's just all about his irritation. In this section, Job shows that he is thoroughly irritated with his friends through harsh criticisms and rebukes. We'll pick it up at verses 1 through 3. This is what Job says next in the narrative. He says, Behold, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. 
Job tells Zophar that he has seen, heard, and understood all this, which refers to God's wisdom, might, and sovereign intervention in the lives of people and nations. That's what we were looking at last week, chapter 12, verses 13 through 25. All the stuff that, that Job had um, sort of spilled out, or that, that Zophar had spilled out onto Job, and then Job replies, hey, I already understand these things. He's now reiterating once more, I already understand the things you understand. You're not teaching me something that I do not know. And he's specifically referring to the latter part of chapter 12, where we looked at God's might in these things. Although his friends treated him like a fool, he claimed that he was not inferior to them in wisdom or insight. He knew what they knew. Thus, what this terrible trio had spoken to him had provided no real help, no consolation, no aid. Their grueling dialogue had been basically pointless. Remember, again, the context. These men had come to Job after hearing of his suffering to comfort and help him, to console him, to to share God's mercy with him in these things. And they did quite the opposite, didn't they? Everything that they had said was just grueling dialogue. It wasn't helpful. It was all pointless. Job knows what they know, and he's not boasting. He just says, you're just telling me things I already know. How are you helping me? Realizing the futility of continuing to debate with his friends, Job states his desire to speak to the Almighty and argue his case with God. And this is something that he does periodically throughout the letter. His friends weren't helping him, so he just figures, hey, I'll just take my case to God. He literally reasons that if my friends won't listen and believe what I say and offer me the consolation and help and wisdom and guidance and and love that I need, maybe the Almighty will. Maybe I just need to take my case to Him. I want to take my case to God, is what Job says. Job knew that taking God to court and arguing his case was a pipe dream. He illustrated that marvelously in chapter 9. But that reality, in fact, did not change his desire. I really think that he's, he's getting to his wit's end here. He's been going back and forth with these friends who were supposed to be there to help him, and now he figures they are of no consolation, no help. There's no one else left for me to to talk to, to interact with. I must take my case to God. I must take it to God because nobody else is helping me. With every passing moment, with every word uttered by these friends to him, he was becoming more and more irritated with them and more and more aware of the fact that only God could help him. And maybe that's one of the kind of hidden gems and purposes of the letter is just to show that You know, you can't really rely on your friends like you'd like to. And God is your ultimate friend, and you need to take all your burden and everything to Him primarily. We go to verses 4 through 6. He's continuing. He says, as for you... Now, this is where he starts to unload magazine after magazine. This is it. He just blasts them. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. (laughs) Hear now my argument, and listen to to my pleadings, or the pleadings of my lips. Job very boldly and brashly tells Zophar that, that he whitewashes with lies. What does that mean? It means to paint over the truth with lies. That would be a phrase that we would use today, right? He paints over the truth with lies lies. And then he he also exclaims or or declares that all three of them are like worthless physicians. 
What is a worthless physician? A worthless physician would be a doctor who fails to properly diagnose his or her patient's ailment. A doctor that, that, that doesn't see the actual problem or test to get results showing the actual problem and therefore not prescribing the proper treatment. That would be a worthless doctor. And I have to say, with all sensitivity to my wife, because we went through some things years ago, we've had experience with a worthless doctor. We did. We had an experience with a worthless physician. Thinking of my mother-in-law here. She had a doctor. And in my opinion, he was worthless. Now, I don't mean to say that as being cruel or, or, or you know, irregularly cold toward him, but he was essentially what Job is talking about here. Now, my mother-in-law went to see her doctor many times. She had abdominal pain. And he diagnosed her with stomach ulcers, but performed no tests. How do you know if somebody has a stomach ulcer just because they have a gut ache and, and you don't prescribe any tests? You don't do an upper GI, you don't do the things. And, and let's, say that, let's say a doctor goes the distance and does that and then finds that there aren't any irregularities or ulcers, but still says the person just has these basic stomach issues. But in any case, she goes over and over and over, and, and there's very little testing, if any, done at all. And, and he says, you just have stomach ulcers, and prescribes her Pepsid and all these sorts of things. And after about 10 years of, of unsuccessful medicine treatments, her pain became intolerable one afternoon, and we had to take her to the ER. I mean, she was just destroyed. And, and, and many of you can resonate with that. You know, we, we get a little twinge of pain. We don't just go to the ER. For us guys, it's like, I'm dying. We have to go. We don't just, that's the last place I want to be. The doctor's the last place most of us men want to be. But the fact that she had to go to the ER illustrates how much pain she was in. She had suffered for 10 years with this at least. And now it was like, I have to go. It, it's, it's, it's gotten out of control. And we took her and... After some tests in a few days, we found out that she had advanced colon cancer and zero ulcers. Zero ulcers. You see, Job's friends were like my mother-in-law's worthless physician. They failed to properly diagnose Job's situation and give him healing doses of love, healing doses of mercy, healing doses of encouragement. In Job, or in, uh, uh, in the chapter here in verse 5, Job literally annihilates them. He annihilates them. He tells them straight up that the wisest thing they could do at this point is to shut up. You claim to be super wise by unpacking all these theological statements and doctrines for me, and you claim to know how God operates, and you're telling me that I'm in sin when I know I'm not, and you're telling me that if I just would repent, then all the blessings would come back. You, you keep pouring out all this wisdom on me, what Job says here in verse 5, literally. And he says, you're dumping all that on me, but let me tell you what the wisest thing you could do is. It'd be to do this that if you would just shut your lips and stop talking, that would display wisdom to me. This is what he says here. And notice, notice the exclamation point. You don't see these in Scripture all the time. They're not real common, but you've got one right there at the end where it says, and it would be your wisdom, exclamation point, exclamation mark. 
According to my calculations, and this was not easy to calculate, there are about 31 exclamation marks in the book of Job, the ESV translation. Can you guess where they appear most? On the end of Job's statements. This was a distressed, aggravated, irritated man. Not, not only was he dealing with the searing loss, the searing pain of loss and, and the suffering and the health issues and these things, but, but I think what was putting him over the top were these three friends, these three worthless physicians. Twenty times Job indicates a statement that would have an exclamation mark on the end of it. Twenty out of the 31. Believe it or not, God actually has a few of them at the end there in chapter 41, 42. Especially when He's rebuking Job's friends. <laughs> in verse 6, Job describes a, another way they could prove to be wise. He says, hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. So you've got a combination here. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar could prove to be wise by shutting up and listening, right? You ever been told that? Shut up and listen. I have. I have a mother. <laughs> and, and a wife, yes. Okay. Don't, don't project your marital struggles onto me, Bruce. My wife never says shut up and listen. She says, honey, could you be quiet and listen? Right? She's more like Elihu, the other friend that comes in later on. Same point. Shut up and, and listen. Job, Job's slam, it parallels nicely with Proverbs 12, 15, which literally describes a wise person as one who listens. And it parallels nicely with, with the wisdom of James, be quick to hear and slow to speak, right? James chapter 1, verse 19. After pleading for his friends to be quiet and to listen to him, Job asked four rhetorical questions in which he challenged the competency of his friends to offer counsel as though they were speaking for God. We see them in verses 7 through 11. Rhetorical question number one in verse 7, will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for Him? Now, it's a, it's a serious claim when a person says they speak for God. That's a serious thing. Yet it is far more serious to misrepresent God with falsities and deceit by attributing to Him actions and words that are misrepresentations. And this is the exact charge Job was bringing against his friends right here. You speak some truths, but you also misrepresent Him in the way that you present them with the lovelessness and the anger in your voices toward me, this terrible sinner. So he, he says, will you speak falsely for God and deceitfully for Him? Is that what you're going to keep doing? That's the first rhetorical question. The second one we see in verse 8. Will you show partiality toward Him? Will you plead the case for God? Job's friends viewed themselves as God's prosecuting attorneys, showing partiality as they attempted to argue the case for God. How many of us have acted like that? Like, hey, I am God's representative here and you need to listen to me. That's what Job is claiming they're doing. What proud presumption they had, believing God had appointed them for this and was using them to literally destroy Job. Nasty attorneys they were. 
Rhetorical question number three, we see it in verses 9 and 10. Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Oh. Can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Job wondered if his counselors could withstand the same examination by God if they were the defendants. In reality, Job knew that no one can deceive God. Thus, these three friends would be exposed like anyone else who would go before God. And after exposing their partiality, when God exposed that, He would surely rebuke them, Job says. And this charge was actually shown to be true when God's verdict was rendered in chapter 42, verse 8. Job was right about this one. He nailed it. Rhetorical question number four, we see it in verse 11. Will not His majesty terrify you and the dread of Him fall upon you? Continuing with the thought of his friends being placed under examination, Job wondered how they would respond while standing there trying to argue God's case in front of God. Even though they were filled with prideful arrogance as they looked down on Job, he reasoned that even they would experience terror and dread as God examined them. Those are the rhetorical questions he asks. And really what he's done is expose the fact that they wouldn't do any better before God. They wouldn't do better than Job or anyone else. But they are the experts. They're the ones who have been appointed and sent from God. Verse 12 we move to, it says, and this is wonderful, your maxims are proverbs of ashes. <laughs> your defenses are defenses of clay. Oh, this is awesome. He tells Zophar, Job tells Zophar that the maxims, or what is a maxim? It is a short, pithy statement. He's saying that your short, pithy statements that you utter against me, they should be turned into proverbs of ashes. How? By being burned on the city dump. Your words are nothing but chaff. They need to be piled up here. Remember where Job is. Remember the context? He's at the ash heap of Uz's city, right? He's at the dump. And he's saying, your words are nothing but the ashes under my feet. Everything that you're saying, is, these are just proverbs of ashes. These things need to be burned right here at the city dump. And they're, not only did he say that, but their self-styled defenses of God's justice were like clay pots that are easily shattered and dashed to pieces. Really what he's saying is, if you went before God to make your case, It'd be nothing but a, a heap of ashes. You're making your case against me, representing him. Your case is nothing but a heap of ashes, nothing but clay pots that are dashed. This is what he's saying. I mean, he's just destroying them here, destroying them here. His irritation is it just, just dripping from these first 12 verses. He's just infuriated and irritated with them, and he let them have it. He let them have it. He let them have it a little bit in in chapter 12, but here he's just, he's just unloading on him. And now he begins to move on a little bit. We look at the second eye, Job's indication. We see this in verses 13 through 19. We will pick it up in 13 and 14 in just a second. In this section, Job indicates that he is prepared to present his case of self-vindication before God's court. That's what he ultimately indicates here. 13 and 14, he says, let me have silence and I will speak. And let come on me what may. What should I, he says, why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Job 
asks Zophar and the others to be silent once more. Remember, he already told them pretty poignantly if they could just shut up and display wisdom in that way. And now he's asking them again. He's really begging them, if you guys could just pipe down and listen, listen to me speak. This time it's not for the purpose of proving their wisdom like in verse 5, but so that he could actually speak with God, so that he could pray to God. How could he focus his thoughts? How could he express his concerns? How could he possibly hear the voice of God with, with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar blathering on? You ever tried to pray when people are talking around you? Pretty hard to do. Imagine when they're launching a verbal assault on you like this, these guys, these clowns. Not easy to do. And he's saying, if you guys could just pipe down once more, pipe down so that I can speak with God. Stop blathering and start shutting. The friends believe that Job was, uh, he, they believed this of him. They believed that he was a sin-hiding, irreverent fool and that pleading his innocence before God would be incredibly dangerous. Again, remember, they think that Job is hiding sin, and that's why he's suffering. But he's not hiding sin. He's an upright, blameless man, chapters 1 and chapter 2. And they think that, man, if, if, if you're hiding sin, and we believe you are, we have no doubt that you are, because these things don't happen to people that, that don't mess up. That's their theology. If you were to go in this sin-hiding, foolish, irreverent condition before God, God will very likely just go ahead and kill you. This is their theology. This is their thinking. But Job knew he was blameless. He knew he was upright. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was right with God when all this stuff happened. And he basically replies, let me speak, and I will face the consequences. If God's going to destroy me, He's going to destroy me. He's, he's willing to take the risk to vindicate his innocence. In verse 14, he uses logic. I like the NLT's rendering better. It says, why, and here it's a little confusing, right? Why should I take my flesh and my teeth? It's like, what the heck? And the NLT's rendering, I think, is, is stronger and easier to understand. It says, why should I put myself in mortal danger and take my life in my own hands? In other words, do you think if I were guilty, if I knew I were guilty, I would go through all this trouble and risk going before God and being smited by Him? This is what he's saying here. Basically, he's saying, I'm not a fool. I'm not going to go argue a futile case before God knowing that I'm hiding sin. I'm a blameless, upright man. I, I have the, the perfect ability to go before God and do this. You think I'd go through all this trouble and make these arguments to you? If I, I'm not gonna, I'm not, this is not a suicide mission, is what Job says. So he's indicating that he wants to go before God and that he can do that. And that if God wants to deal with him harshly, so be it. And he really expresses this in verse 15. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. What Job does here is he doubles down. He tells Zophar, even if God were to kill him for, appro for approaching him inappropriately, he would still trust in God to vindicate him of all charges. If God did not kill Job, this would demonstrate proof, he believed, of his own blamelessness. This stay of judgment would give him ample opportunity to argue his ways to God's face. But even if God did destroy him, he would still have a strong confidence in God, a strong confidence in God's vindication of his innocence. 
Even the, the fear of death would not deter Job from claiming his innocence before God. I want to take my case before the highest court, before God. You guys are of no help. And, and if, if I come to him in an irreverent manner and he, he decides to slay me, so be it. I, I still trust in him. And, and Job's already believing that God had slayed him in a sense. His life, he knows God is sovereign. He knows God is in control over all things. He knows that nothing happens apart from God's approval according to his will and promises and everything else. His wisdom, he knows this. So he already feels that he's been slayed by God. What more do I have to lose? And I love that. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. It's brilliant. Uh, it has to be the Holy Spirit working through him. Verse 16, he says this, This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him, come before God. Job believed an appearance before God would be his salvation because he knew no godless man, no godless man should ever come before him. Unlike his friends, Job demonstrated a proper understanding of God here. He knew that to enter into God's presence with unconfessed sin would mean certain death for the person standing on holy ground. Further, Job's willingness to plead his case before God was an indication that he was, in fact, innocent. No one argues a case. He does not believe he can win. I guess today things have become so corrupt that people do attempt to do this in court. But at some point, this is not the way that it was. Just the, he, he just believes that, look, I will go before him, and, and, and I'm a blameless, upright man. I'm a man of faith. I should survive this. There's no reason for me to be destroyed because I know that guilty people cannot do the same thing. They can't go before a holy God, but I can because I'm in God. This is what he argues. Verses 19, 17 through 19, he says, Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die for the third time in this chapter, Job begs for the ears of his friends, right? Verse 6, verse 13, now verse 17. He asked them to, to listen carefully so they could take in what he had to say since he had prepared his case. Obviously, as Job spoke, they were not listening but were preparing their next argument, right? They weren't actually listening to what he was saying. They were just capturing a few things, but trying to figure out how to respond rather than actually really listening to him. In confidence, Job stated that he shall be in the right. Look at it. Underline it. I will be in the right. I'm a blameless, innocent man. I have not concealed sin that led to this situation. Job was absolutely convinced that if he were given the opportunity, he would win his case before God. He would win his case before God. Boldly, Job asks, who is there to contend with me? In other words, if someone could prove his guilt, hey, if somebody were there to prove that I'm actually guilty like you guys think that I am, if that were the case and they proved that, I would just be silent and die. I wouldn't push any further with my case here. In other words, if, if Job was guilty like his friends suggested, he was ready to pass away in silent shame. 
But he believed such an indictment could not be served against him. God cannot, you know, lob this charge against me. He's, he can't do it because I know I'm blameless before him. I make sacrifices. I, I'm a man of faith. I do the things that he's told me to do. And so he's just confident that if he takes his case to God, he'll win it. Now we can move to the third eye. Job's intercession. This is where he begins to pray. We see this in 20 through 28, the rest of the section. In this section, Job prays and intercedes on his own behalf. He's got friends that won't pray for him. <laughs> he has to pray and intercede on his own behalf by asking God to stop afflicting and terrifying him. This is what he does. Pick it up at 20 and 21. He says, only grant me two things. He's speaking to God now, by the way, not to, not to Zophar the gopher. Only grant me two things, God, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Job sought to present his case before the Almighty if God would grant him two requests. The first request was that God would withdraw your hand far from me, he says. Remember, in Scripture, the hand of God represents God's might, His power, right? Psalm 89, verse 13 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, it's throughout Scripture, those are two references. Job was essentially requesting for God to stop using His powerful hand against him, to stop afflicting him. Now, we know that it was Satan who was afflicting Job. We know that, chapters 1 and 2, but we also know that God is sovereign and that Satan doesn't do anything to God's people unless God authorizes it. So Job believes in God's sovereignty, believes that Satan somehow probably had to get permission if he understood that Satan was involved at all, but he knows that somehow at the top of the, at the, top of the tree, God is there in His sovereignty. It would not be happening to him if God has not sovereignly ordained it. He believes this, but he's saying, would you, would you stop using your hand. Take it far from me, your hand of might. Stop afflicting me is what he says. That's the first request. The second request is that God would stop terrifying him. Chapter 6, verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 14. He felt that God was terrifying him, especially at night when he was trying to sleep, when he would have these crazy nightmares and dreams and visions and things. You know, when you're going through hell, you can actually dream of hell. Right? When you're going through hell, you, you, you will sometimes dream of hellish types of things, and that's what he was doing. And, and so he wants, what, God to take his hand of, of power and affliction away from him and to stop with the nightmares and terrifying dreams and these things. If these conditions were met, then Job would no longer hide himself and meet with God, is what Job says. Christopher Ash provides a good summary of 20 and 21. He says, Job pleads for a brief pause in his misery. His grief and pain is so deep that he is paralyzed and weakened by it. If only God will take away his hand of judgment for a moment, then Job could stop hiding and speak. That's, a, I think, a fair theological assessment or commentary on the verses. 22 we go to, Job continues by saying, Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply to me. Job basically offers God a choice here. If God would call him, then he would answer. Or if Job spoke first, he expected God to reply. His frustration was that God had said nothing, leaving him to stagger and rage and doubt and despair. Remember, God remained silent all the way through this endeavor until the very end of it. 
And even then he gives Job no rationale or reason for why he suffered. The only reason he gives is because I'm God and you're not. <laughs> Thank you, right? Sometimes that's just the way that it is. Verse 23, how many, Job says, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgressions and my sin. Job asks God to reveal his sin count, like as if there's a counter there. Like every time you sin, click, click. You know, when you go into Costco, they got a counter that, you know, they figure out how many people can be in there at a time with the COVID bowl, you know, right? God's got a sin counter. Oh, there goes Phil again. Click. 962 trillion, right? Hey, where am I at in my sin count, God, is what Job is basically asking. How many iniquities and sins have I committed? Make me know my transgression. Boy, this is the, really, he's displaying the heart of a believer. A believer wants to know where he's at in his sins. He doesn't want to rejoice in that. He want, he's repulsed and repelled by it. But he considers where he's at in his life, right? That's the true heart of a believer. We want to know, what, where am I sinning? How have I sinned? How many sins am I committing here? God, help me understand this is what he's saying. And he figured that if he knew the number of sins that had caused his suffering, because again, that's their theology, sin causes suffering, then he could possibly accept his circumstances or he could repent and change his life accordingly. Sadly, this statement from Job shows that Job, weary and worn down, was beginning to believe his friend's accusations against him. Remember, he's maintained his, his innocence and his blamelessness and his uprightness this whole time. But here he's starting to say, well, obviously, there's got to be something wrong there. God, could you show me your sin counter? He's starting to believe their arguments. It's so sad. Verses 24 and 25, he says this to God, Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? Job asks, why God hides His face from him. Now, this is a, a bizarre thing to ask since the battered patriarch Job said repeatedly that God would not leave him alone, right? Chapter 7, verse 16, verse 19, chapter 10, verse 20, chapter 14, verse 6, over and over and over, Job says, leave me alone, God, leave me alone, God, right? Make America great, Job's motto, leave me alone, God. Over and over and over. And yet here he's saying, why are you hiding your face from me? Which is it? Right? And what this question that he asks here illustrates, it illustrates the confusion that can come with deep, deep grief. Job felt that God was hiding from him and staring at him at the same time. That's grief-induced confusion. It messes with our minds. Job also felt that God was treating him like an enemy. This, too, is grief-induced confusion, right? When we, when we go through terrible trials and difficulties and things, these things, when we suffer great losses and stuff, we, we start to think that God must be against me. Why would He allow these things to happen? Why, why? Though He slay me, I will question Him, right? Instead of I will trust in Him. What, what is going on here? How many of us have done that? In the midst of something, you look to the sky and you say, why is this happening? Why is this going? I've done this over you. Why is this happening in our church, God? 
We've all done this when we're, when we're going through difficulties and trials and, and sicknesses, and especially when we lose family members and, and friends and people that are close and, and church people. It, it, sometimes we just, why? Why are you, are, am I your enemy now? We say these things, right? But it, as I said, is grief-induced confusion. God's perspective of Job was vastly different than Job's perspective of God toward him. How did God see Job? He saw him as a enemy? No, a servant. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 3. Have you considered my servant? There is no one on earth like him. That's God's perspective of Job through this whole ordeal. The fact that Job went through things and God allowed these things to happen did not ever change or impact God's perspective of Job. Nothing ever changed God's love and acceptance of Job. Never. It didn't matter what he was going through. It didn't change anything between Job and God. God considered Job his servant, not his enemy. Never once. Even, even when Job questioned God and, in, and tried to indict God on things, God did not say, now you're my enemy. You're still my servant. You will always be my servant. That's the love of God for us in Christ. Nothing changes it. No matter how stupid I get, I feel stupid, but it doesn't change God's love for me. It doesn't. Now, it impacts my sin, impacts how I perceive and comprehend His love for me, and that's the situation with Job. Grief-induced confusion. It's a big thing. He says in 20, verse 25, he compares himself to a driven leaf and dry chaff. Which are what? Worthless. Dry leaves on your yard, they're not worth anything. Chaff, just, just dust, it's not worth anything. These things are worthless. When he, when he compares himself to a driven leaf and dry chaff, he's calling himself worthless. He implied that his, his whole situation here was beneath God's dignity to spend effort frightening and pursuing one who had become as worthless as leaves and chaff. To see his life and self as being utterly worthless, like yard refuse, is another example of grief-induced confusion. Job was not worthless like leaves or chaff. He was actually quite useful. God was using Job to teach Satan and all creation a powerful lesson that God is worthy to be loved and worshipped for who He is, not just because of what He gives. Job was the most useful person on earth at that time, at least to God. Why? Because there was none like Him. No one had a relationship in the entire world at that time. No one had a relationship with, with God like Job did. It was deep and profound and... Oh, the fellowship that they had, the commitment that Job exhibited to God and God's covenant commitment to Job. There was just nothing like it with anyone else. It says this in chapter 1, chapter 2. Job, you're not worthless. You're worth to God. You're worth a lot. 
Of all the people of the earth, He uses you to shame Satan and teach all creation that He is worthy to be loved, adored, and worshipped because of who He is, not merely because of what He gives. I think, honestly, at this time, Job was the most honored person in history up to this point. Oh, yeah, he suffered. He went through hell. But what an honor it was for God to choose him to suffer in the way that he did and to work through his example to bring about these profound lessons to creation, to the angels, to everything, to the mountains, to Satan himself and to all his demons who were coming and going in and out of God's counsel in heaven. We see that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. I think he's a blessed man. The question is, is that do we, you know, do we make our lives about these temporal blessings that we have here, or do we really focus on the spiritual blessings that we have from Christ? We tend to focus on the temporal, what's in front of us. I don't think that we would consider one who loses as much as Job did to be blessed, but he was blessed. Blessed beyond anyone else on earth, by far. Verses 26 and 27, for he says this, you, to God, you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Growing in his exasperation, Job accused God of keeping a written record of his sins, like the records containing the crimes of a criminal a rap sheet. You know, not only does he have a sin counter, but he's just writing everything down. Well, Job, you've got a pretty serious rap sheet going here. Phil's is a, a little bit more than yours, but you've got a pretty bad one here. Like, God, this is what he does with his time. He just thinks that he's collecting a rap sheet on him. David expressed similar concern in Psalm 25. Bruce read it earlier. We look at verse 7 once more. It says, remember, David says, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Listen to this. This is the most insane thing. You've got to pick up on this. David is crying out to God as Job is crying out to God. He's saying, remember not the sins of my youth. According to your steadfast love, remember what? My sins? No, don't remember those. Remember me. Remember me, the object of your love, the recipient of your great salvation, of your mercy, of your grace. This is what David is crying out here. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. That's Job's prayer long before David ever existed, was ever a twinkle in his parents' eyes, before his parents' parents were twinkles, any of the twinkles, twinkle toes, twinkle eyes, whatever it is. No twinkle long before David ever came about. God loved him. Remember me, not my sins, David says. And this is Job's exact sentiment long before David ever came about, long before David's parents or grandparents, anyone. Job believed he must have maybe received a, a delayed sentence for crimes he had committed earlier, perhaps long ago in his youth. That's what he's saying. Well, I know I'm not sinning now, but maybe it's one of the stupid things I did when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. Remember the time I stole that pita bread? I don't know what he's going through his mind here, but well, it's flatbread, you know, because they don't do the yeast. It's a stupid joke. 
maybe he's thinking, well, maybe it's from something that I did when I was a kid, right? People think that today, right? Well, God's punishing me for my past sins. Have you ever heard someone say that? That's what he thinks here. And he, and he feels like an inmate in a maximum security prison. It was as if God had put his feet in stocks so that the soles of his feet couldn't travel very far. I mean, how far can you walk in stocks? You get the, you get the handcuffs on your feet and on your, on your hands here, you can't go very far. You certainly can't run. You look like a penguin. He says, I can't make a move here. It's like he's incarcerated. He felt that his paths were under constant surveillance, that he was being watched from a guard tower. He felt that he could not escape this divine incarceration or hide from God's ever-watchful, omnipresent, all-seeing eyes. This is what he says here. I'm incarcerated. I can't make a move. Big Brother's always watching me. In fact, it's Big Daddy, right? Big Abba, Big Father's watching me constantly. I can't make a move. As soon as I, I try to walk a little bit, he's on me. And he's just writing everything down, these bitter things. This is depressing. Verses 26 and 27 are depressing. Again, I think it's sin-induced, right? Grief, sin-induced confusion, or grief-induced confusion. Verse 28, he says, Man wastes away like a rotting thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Last verse there. I think this statement from Job is, is a bit detached from, from what we've been looking at. I think it fits better with what follows in chapter 14. It is a hinge that connects the idea of worthlessness, verse 25, with the subject that follows, namely the brevity of life. Life is short, isn't it? How many of you that are over 50 here never imagined ever getting to 50? You thought, gosh, that's going to take forever. Next thing you know, I'm 50. Now I'm 51. What's next? 52. Hopefully Jesus is next. Yeah. I mean, right? Life is insanely short, right? Whenever, whenever I'm around parents that have little kids, I'm like, I remember when my little kids were, were I remember when my kids and my boys were so cute and, and precious like that. Now look at them. They just eat everything and just, they're just like chaff and leaves. No, they're not. Right? I mean, life just... It just, it's unbelievable. Kay, I know you could testify to this. It just flies. It just goes by so fast. It's unbelievable. Your kids grow up and it's insane. It goes by so quick. And, and that's really what he talks about in, in chapter 14. And I think that 28 goes with that better. Life is short. We and all we have, as Job says, it just wastes away like a, rotted, a rotting thing or a rotten thing like a garment that is moth-eaten, right? This is how he describes. Now, he's using some, some serious language here that's, that's kind of abrupt and nasty, but remember his condition. We would just say life goes by fast. We wouldn't say, well, it just rots away. Well, if you've gone through what he's gone through, it's rotting away, right? If, you, if you're in his shoes, it's not just going by fast. It's rotting away. This is what he's saying. And, and isn't this why Jesus said, do not store up treasures on earth but in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, right? Life is short. It's temporal. Lay 
up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not here on earth, Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Let's close and begin to wrap it up here. Anyone else have the sniffles this time of year when it goes from hot to cold overnight? Your nose run too? Yeah, I don't have COVID. As soon as you do anything, it's like, ah! It's like, get out of here. There's other sicknesses, right? But I, I find myself just constantly wiping my face. It's like, what is wrong with me? Can we, could you turn the fluid off, you know? I think if, if we could boil chapter 13 down to one word, all right? I don't, think, I, I don't think I've ever attempted to boil an entire chapter, especially one like this, down to a single word. If I could boil it all down to a single word, I believe that word would be hope. Hope. Job was a man who underwent an excruciating trial in a hopeless situation. His spirits were sinking lower and lower. You can really see that at the latter end of, at the, toward the end here of, of chapter 13. His spirits were sinking lower and lower. Death seemed to be the only way out for him most of the time. But in the midst of his despair, his soul was suddenly strengthened with a renewed hope in God. What did he say? Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Verse 15. There it is. Hanging on to this hope kept Job going when he wanted to give up. You see, hope is critical to our own sanity and even to our survival to a degree in the midst of terrible trials and tribulation, right? A person without hope is dangerous. And yet a person who has hope can endure anything, literally. The Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn that's a hard last name to say, Solzhenitsyn, was a man who knew how to hang on to hope. As a political prisoner in Russia for many years, he became an icon of perseverance through suffering for the cause of freedom. Forced to work 12 hours a day at hard labor while existing on a bread and water diet, he became gravely ill, very sick. The doctors predicted his imminent death. One afternoon, he stopped working because he just didn't have anything left. There was no gas in the tank. He just couldn't keep going, and he just kind of stopped out there breaking rocks or whatever it is that he was doing. He couldn't keep it going, even though he knew the guards would beat him severely for stopping work. At that precise moment, Another prisoner, a fellow Christian, approached him. With his cane, this other prisoner, with his cane, he drew a cross in the sand and then quickly erased it. Instantly, instantly, Solzhenitsyn felt all the hope of God flood into his soul. In the midst of his despair, that emblem of hope where Christ 
fought to win the victory over sin, Satan, death, and hell. It gave Solzhenitsyn the courage to endure that difficult day and the grueling months of imprisonment that laid before him. You see, like Job and Solzhenitsyn, we can have hope in the midst of our suffering. What must we do to find it, to get it, to have it? We must refocus. We must get our eyes off of our circumstances and put them back on our living hope, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 We must focus on things above, not on things below. Colossians 3.2, right? You know that if, if you just stay focused on the, on the horizontal here, right? And you take your eyes off Christ and on the things of heaven and you just stay here and, and here. What happens? Hope goes. We must also focus on the promises of God. Psalm 119, verses 147 and 148. Yeah, the psalm is that long. Focus on the promises of God. We must focus on the purpose for our suffering, which isn't the suffering itself, but that God is working through the suffering to make us like Christ. Romans 8, 29. And lastly, we must focus on the sovereignty of God and know that He is in control. What verse would I go to for that? I would go to the book of Job. Chapters 1 through 42, focusing on Christ, focusing on heaven, focusing on God's promises, focusing on the purpose for our suffering, the sanctification that comes through that to make us like Christ, focusing on God's sovereignty, the fact that He is always in control, will produce hope in our weary hearts, which will strengthen us literally, literally help us get through difficult days. That's how you get hope, okay? So if you are going through a trial, if you are suffering and you feel that your tank is depleted, look to Christ. Look to heaven. Focus on things above. Look to the promises of God, which are throughout Scripture. Remember that God is sovereign. Remember that your suffering is not in vain, that it actually has value because God works through it to make you like Christ. How are you going to become like Christ without suffering when our Savior suffered like no one else? You think Job's suffering was bad? He ain't seen nothing compared to Christ. It is essential for us to suffer to be made like Christ who suffered. Have hope based on those realities. Refocus your gaze, your eyes, on that which is eternal, that which matters. Okay? That's how you can have victory in the midst of suffering. That's how you can have hope in the midst of suffering. That's how you'll have a sense of purpose in the midst of suffering. That's how it's done. Refocus. Refocus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and 
It is super profound and yet super simplistic. You make it simple for us. And we pray, Lord, that we've learned our lesson today. We need to refocus if we are to have hope. We've got to take our eyes off this world, this temporal life, the problems, the circumstances, the struggles, and get them back on our living hope. Ultimately, that's where we need to go, is we need to focus on our living hope, who is Christ alone. He rose from the grave. He lives now, and He is our living hope. May we keep our eyes on Jesus. Help us to do that so that we have so much hope that we can become a benefit and blessing to others as we share the hope that we have in Christ. This is a, a tough and hard and world that is just filled with travail and trials and tribulation and so much difficulty and uncertainty and all these things, and yet we have hope in you, God. Our hope isn't in wrapped up in... If it's wrapped up in this election and Tuesday, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. We need to shift our focus onto Christ who is altogether lovely and our great King of kings who rules and reigns over all creation, over all the kingdoms and nations of the world. And we need to accept the outcome of the election because it can only come by His hand and He has purposes in it. May our hope not be in the election in this world, but in Christ alone, in the promises of God, in the sovereignty of God, in all that we've discussed today. Help us to do that. Thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. We know you love us. May we show our love for you through obedience this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.